0: reshape trade patterns as the BRICS alliance intensifies plans for a new world order. Kodongwana made the call at the World Economic Forum in Davos earlier today. Talks about a new world order and increased trade among BRICS member states gained momentum at the bloc's annual meeting last year in Johannesburg. At the meeting... The
1: Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106FM.
2: The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB, driving impactful action-led insights in collaboration with the APSA Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP, financial services provider for the uninitiated. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. We're going to pick up on various stories this evening. It's going to be a really interesting night for you, and I hope that you will stay tuned with us tonight, particularly Warren Ingram, Hoffman 7 this evening, as to why you must own shares. It is not a discussion. It is not a negotiation. It is not an if-but-maybe. It's a casino. I don't trust companies. I don't... I, I, I All of the regular excuses. Um, simply why you should own shares. Especially in a world where there is so much uncertainty. I see a newsletter that I follow in the United States makes the point. It's a reliable newsletter. It's a quality newsletter. American debt the americans are writing checks that their their economy may not be able to cash in the last three months their debt level has risen from 33 trillion to 34 trillion dollars it's up two trillion dollars in the past six months four trillion dollars in the past two years 11 trillion dollars up in the last four years so they've gone from $23 trillion in debt, and remember every year they have these argy the discussions about whether or not they should raise the debt ceiling, and it goes to the brink every year, and then the debt ceiling is, is lifted. They've gone from $23 trillion in national debt in the last four years to the current level of $34 trillion. It's an astonishingly astonishingly scary number. Um, that's one of the issues we will raise this evening with somebody who watches Global Debt very closely. That's Rudy Fanamarva. He uh, is our market commentator this evening. Also, the Tabilioka story goes from weird to worse and back again. Uh, we will also, this evening, talk about the World Economic Forum in Davos. Pavlos on small business and, of course, Peter Atod montolto I'm um, looking at the President's Economic Advisory Council. Um, it's a grouping of very smart people who sit and advise the President on issues. Issues of the economy, and if all these smart people are advising the president on issues of the economy, why is the economy not flying? Why is it not booming? Why are we not seeing the huge uptick that we should see in an economy which is being advised upon by some very erudite individuals? Um, some may even have their own PhDs. The Money
3: Show with
1: Bruce Whitfield on seven hundred two,
3: seven hundred two.
2: Well, Business Day has been doing a very good store or job of keeping ahead of the Tabi Lioka story, which had broke earlier this week. Reporting today that Netcare, which had her on its board briefly last year, did not adequately check her qualifications. She was a non-executive director for 14 months until March last year. Her resignation was for a perfectly good reason. She resigned to join Remgro. Remgro owns rival MediClinic, so it would have been a conflict of interest to be on the boards of Net uh, of Netcare and on the board of Remgro because of the, ne- the MediClinic interest there. Then suddenly she quit Remgro in December for personal reasons, sparking questions around her credentials, which so far she has tragically been unable to verify with any level of credibility claiming that she stepped down because she was undergoing an operation in New York this week for glaucoma on one eye. But she still serves, as far as we can tell, there be no announcements to the contrary, on the boards of Anglo-American Platinum and MTN South Africa, neither of which has gone public either to support her claim of having the PhD or um, to uh, say that she didn't present PhD Well Netcare told Business Day that it's a standard practice within Netcare a background check was conducted a report by an external specialist integrity assessment firm commissioned by Netcare and received in November 2021 it listed Ms Liorca's highest qualification as an MA and an MSc and that's absolutely fine they're tough things to get congratulations to her for those uh, the newspaper quoting Chris Vikisi, the general counsel and group secretary at Net- Netcare, he added that uh, Tabilioka was held in high esteem and was the consummate professional. My experience of her personally, absolutely. Uh, he also said that Tabilioka had received excellent, uh, excellent, excellent referrals from entities and people who said her integrity was above reproach. And so that's where this thing gets really, really difficult. And I've expressed some concern around it, of course, previously. Uh, And I said, I would love for her to just come out and say, here is my credential, here is the certificate. Now, the certificate has done the rounds on social media, but it does not point to the PhD. She says there's an anomaly because of a name she used. However, the London School of Economics cannot verify a PhD being issued in the name that she provided either. When it comes to MTN and to MTN South Africa and Anglo-American Platinum, we are not getting much response either from them. And the sound of crickets is tragically deafening, absolutely deafening. MTN South Africa and Anglo-American Platinum either hanging her out to dry because they know she doesn't have the PhD or not willing to support her or are looking frantically to see what process they followed. In hindsight, says uh, Netcare, we should have proactively inquired why the PhD qualification, as stated on her CV, was not reflected in the report. Given the recent disclosures of the integrity of Ms. Liorca's academic qualifications, it's apparent that Netcare could have done more to verify. Have you ever been caught short as a manager? Have you ever been found to be wanting in the research that you have done into a potential candidate? I was speaking to somebody in the space earlier this week and they were just saying it's a pandemic. It's an absolute pandemic. The fact that uh, there are so many people rocking around with qualifications they claim to have but simply cannot verify. Jennifer Barkhazen speaks on behalf of Managed Integrity Evaluation. Would you back up the assertion, Jennifer, that there is a pandemic of misrepresentation when it comes to academic qualifications in South Africa?
4: Good evening. Uh, most definitely. We have seen that fake qualifications is making the round, and the green mold has been a hot topic in South Africa for many, many years. And that is why it is very important for companies to make sure that the people that they're on board are thoroughly vetted because they cannot afford to take any risk when hiring new talent within the organization. They have to mitigate their risk by thoroughly vetting a candidate.
2: Now, of course, you would say that because you work for a company that does this (laughs) sort of work. I mean, uh, but you would not exist if there wasn't a problem is my assessment of it, right?
4: Most definitely. And, you know, this the recruitment process that companies go through, it's a stressful exercise and it's a time-consuming exercise. And going through all of these checks sometimes, you know, it feels like that it might be unnecessary. It's too much. But doing it right the first time, going through these necessary checks will ensure that your risk as a company is mitigated and you're keeping staff within your organization safe. Because People are going around, and it depends on how you look at it. There's a very high unemployment rate in South Africa. So people are desperate. So being desperate, they might say they have a qualification, which they don't. And because it's so easy to acquire a fake certificate in South Africa, uh, you get people that's just dishonest, and they get the certificate from a a degree mill, which seems to be around each and every corner. So, unfortunately, we we are now in a situation as South Africans where you cannot take a CV or qualification at face value. You have to go to the source to verify that document to make sure that the institution that they claim they have the qualification with is true and correct.
2: Okay, what's a degree mill? Explain this concept of the degree mill to me. I think I know what it is. I think I've spoken about this before, but just explain this idea that there's a place that produces fake certificates or places that produce fake certificates?
4: Yeah, So, you know, you get your more back alley type of degree, more where a person with uh, tech. <laughs> and, and for lack of a better word of explaining that. No, but, no, no. You it's
5: know, a
2: wonderful description. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's evocative and it's a good description.
4: So you get somebody, they're quite screwed up with a computer. They have some software where they can quickly... Um, edit a document, so you, you get a certificate and it might be somebody else's certificate, they slap your name on it, you pay them a 1,000 rand or 1,500 rand and you have a fake certificate. We've seen internationally that they've gone so far as they, you buy your certificate online and then when people want to verify it, they call this call centre almost and then they actually verify that certificate. So people have become very sophisticated in... In delivering these documents, and then they also verify it. And that is why it's so important that you go to the source that issued that and make sure that it's a credible institution as well. Because it's one thing people say, Yes, I have a PhD, but there's people working hard and putting in years and hours to work for that PhD. It's either for a job opportunity, they love studying, it's just to, you know, move up in the world and then other people come in and they say, I have a PhD, they want the title but they didn't put in the hard work for that. So it is you know, it is really a pandemic.
2: But if the, if the degree certification agency, this fake place, the place down the alleyway as you suggest, funkydegrees.com or whatever it might be called, <laughs> issues me with the degree and then has... a a sweatshop sort of verification agency of its own to verify its own fake degrees, how do people like yourselves actually go to verify that the people you're talking to are real and that they are able to verify a certification that somebody who may or may not have that certification is actually genuine or not, that they've done the work that gives them the qualification that entitles them to say MBA or MA or PhD? Yes, that's the other
4: thing. We we companies need to also be alert. If you get a UNISA certificate and it belongs I'll use myself as an example. So I have a, a degree from UNISA, it's my certificate yeah, you say, in the park you case say and say all that, of that.
2: Jennifer. <laughs> you
4: say that. I actually don't have one with UNISA. that's what I'm saying. It's just an example. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but now just my checking. student yeah. number is one, two, three, four, five. Yes. Now Bruce goes and it's like, I don't have a degree with Unisa, but I need to have this specific degree, and um, they are putting it out there, and you go and you buy it from a degree mill. I'm not saying that you did this. I'm just using you as an example now. Now, on your certificate, it says there's 12345, but that student number belongs to Jennifer Barkay, and it doesn't belong to sure. Bruce. Now, if you aren't going through the right processes, and if you as a company don't have policies and procedures in place to make sure that you are doing your vetting correctly and not taking it at face value. You will not be just phoning a random call center number on a certificate or something that a candidate is giving to you. You are going directly to the source because they will check on your ID number. It's like, but Bruce's Bruce's ID number doesn't match our records. Then they will go, okay, what is the student number? Oh, but this student number belongs to a different individual. And that is where it is very important for companies to either go to the source directly or use a, a, a company a vetting company like mie to assist them because we have the relationship and people are taking chances with international uh, international institutions because they think that these very these qualifications cannot be checked from south africa and in fact that is not true because it doesn't matter if you're based in south africa the rest of africa or globally you are going to the source to verify that information and all the information needs to match. They are even checking certificate uh, signatures and they know that in between 1999 and 2005, the registrar was this person and this is how the signature looks because they are faking the signatures, they are faking the student numbers, putting on a name, So there's so many things to look out for. And as I said, uh, with today's technology, technology is great and we are embracing it. But it's also just making it easier for these crooks to make a fake certificate.
2: This may be outside of your lane, and tell me if it is, but do we have legal consequences for people in South Africa who purport to have a particular qualification, represent themselves as having that qualification, get a a job at somebody else's expense who may have... Also been in line for that job, but their qualification tipped the balance, or they were great in the interview, they were charming, they were personable, whatever it was, uh, they won the, the job because of that qualification, or you know, it was a very important deciding factor. And somebody else has been prejudiced. Do we have a mechanism to hold people to account for what is fraud?
4: Yes, we we at South Africa has come away in in that space. Now, unfortunately, with any other crime, you are. Innocent until proven guilty, but in a scenario within our organization, when you are submitting a fraudulent qualification and it comes back as a fraudulent from the institution, you will be listed with the Southern Africa for Prevention Services, which will flag you if you want to open up a bank account, whatever the case might be. The institution is then responsible to open up a case against that person. And if you are then found guilty of fraud because you have lied about having that qualification and you presented a fraudulent document. You can face a hefty fine and depending on the level or the severity, you could even face jail time. So, it is. It's no longer just a slap on the wrist.
2: No. No, absolutely, and that's a good thing. Hypothetically, Jennifer, if I claimed to have a PhD that I'd attained at a foreign university using a different name from the name in which I to which I was commonly referred, and nobody could find or track that particular research, uh, the, the particular PhD certificate, the qualification, or even any doctoral thesis bearing my name or the name that I'd shared, how likely is it? that that qualification will exist in the real world?
4: That is a difficult one because it depends on when that qualification was issued. But At any most point in the often, last
2: 15 years, hypothetically?
4: Again, just a hypo- okay. Uh, hypothetical. Okay, in the last 15 years, that's, we all had computers and everything is electronic. Now, for, for a certificate like that, most most institutions, they don't just register you on your name and your surname. If you think back 15 years, many of the people who studied weren't married yet. So most women it will be difficult to find them on any institution if they're just searching by name or surname because they will be on their maiden name. They are searching with an identifier like your ID number. Now if you are checking for a name, a previous name, a surname, along with the ID number and on that specific course it is very unlikely for that certificate not to exist if it was obtained from that institution. However, I'm speaking hypothetically, as you mentioned. Of course. You, of course. If they are going to, if they are going to the institution, and I mean they've gone through all of this, and I'm sure that they have checked against a, an, an identifier. If that is not found, then 99.9% of the time, that document will be a fraudulent docu- document.
2: Thank you Jennifer and what a wonderful explanation you've given us this evening and illuminated us and educated us and taught us and trained us a little this evening so thank you very much indeed. And I look at the feedback I'm getting as my WhatsApp fills up on my phone this evening. No companies prosecute this fraud says somebody I know uh, and that's the point here as well. Companies are, are reluctant to go, remember Danisa Baloy who claimed to have a PhD from an American University, And she was a director at Fidentia. This is going back, what, 15 years or so. Fidentia, this, the used lawn salesman, I've forgotten his name, J. Arthur Brown. And he ran a thing called Fidentia, Widows and Orphans Fund, into the ground. And he a, a posh hotel and uh, a pole dancing club for his wife and all sorts of other things. He went to jail. Danisa Boloy was also on the board of APSA, and APSA said to Danisa Bolloy, according to the company's act, you need to step down if a company of which you're a director goes bust. Your company has gone bust, and she refused. So they fired her. Somebody then inquired about her PhD and could find no track of that PhD. Um, and there have been a couple of others as well. But why is it that we don't name and shame, I wonder? Um, it's curious, is it not? This is The Money Show. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Action-led insights in Africa's agricultural sector to drive collaborative impact through the APSA Insights Series.
1: is a registered FSP. The Money Show.
6: The Markets.
2: Welcome uh, to Rudy Fundamadro. Rudy is a portfolio manager at Advice Works, and today's big, beautiful, juicy surprise, wrapped up in a very expensive bow in a very nice presentation box, was Luxury Goods Group Richemont, and an update from the company today saying that they'd enjoyed bumper sales in China. Now this raises a whole bunch of questions, Rudy. But let's first talk about Richemont, and then to the signals that it's sending us.
3: Evening, Bruce. Yeah, it, it was. Certainly the market loved the, the trading update, the share price ending up over 10% on the day. they uh, spoke about the, the sales being up in the region of 8% eight, eight um, So, which I think the, you know, is, is under the circumstances not a, not a bad result. Uh, China did do well, so that falls under the Asian division, and those sales are up 13%. That is a, a big global uh, geography for them. Um, it is coming, however, off a very low base. So the previous comparative year, uh, China was still in lockdown. So it is a, a significant recovery from a from a, a you know a lockdown situation, which which I think somewhat artificially uh, pleases those numbers. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I think it's you know it's, it's a good overall outcome. It seems like their jewelry business, which is the dominant portion of their luxury goods. Uh, was up about 12%, which which is an attractive result uh, under the circumstances. Cash holdings now in the region of sort of 6.8 billion euros, so very conservatively positioned at the moment.
2: Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Last week, Burberry, which is a UK-based luxury goods group that uh, makes you know, products with a with a trademark check, uh, they said that they issued a profit warning because China was massively disappointing and China is underperforming because of the Chinese economy. The Richemont update sends a very different signal as to what is going on, certainly amongst wealthy people in China. Well it does seem seem certainly for the moment
3: so, Bruce. uh you know I think that the jewelry sales in China obviously are uh doing doing well just uh, there might have been a bit of a timing difference between Burberry's uh, uh update and enrichments, and, and specifically the jewelry portion of the luxury market seems to be doing quite well as as opposed to for example the specialist wash makers, which is only up sort of three percent and the other luxury goods, which are actually down slightly. Um, but, but yeah, there has been a, a very good market for them. I, I suspect that the year ahead is going to be a lot more difficult. You know, they, they're now coming with a high base. Um, and the general economic data from China is not looking particularly attractive. Well, one hopes that, you know, that luxury end of the market remains robust. You know, the, the argument is that there's, there's always an element of, of wealthy people who, who
2: continue to spend. And that's the great, I suppose, dichotomy. There are the haves, there are those that wish they had and spend an awful lot of money on luxury goods to make it look like they've got it. And then there's the rest of us who can't participate, won't participate, don't participate in that upper end of the luxury goods spectrum simply because we don't need to be seen to be ostentatious to reflect any sense of progress in our lives. Um but it does send some very clear signals as to in a world where the poor are getting poorer, the rich most certainly are getting richer and able to afford the funky the funky toys. Well they are
3: Bruce and, and certainly you know, China over the last couple of decades has been a place where there's been an emerging middle class created. Not only emerging middle class, but obviously an emerging upper class. Uh and just because of the sheer numbers of of the, the the geography, you know, even if they they're growing at Two or three percent, that's still a, a lot of new wealthy people being created on an annual basis. And obviously, to the extent to which they, they continue showing off and, and buying favors by passing around expensive watches and the like, well, that's, that really plays the rich man's
2: hand. Most certainly does. I saw some interesting statistics as I was coming on air this evening about the rate of growth of America's debt burden. Um, and a newsletter that I subscribed to was talking about the the rapid rise. And over the last three months, we've seen a trillion dollar increase in the amount of debt that the America is carrying to $34 trillion. That's up on a trillion dollars on three months ago. It's up $2 trillion on six months. It's up a significant 11 or $12 trillion. My memory lets me down down now over the last four years it's an exponential growth and i i wonder if so much of what's bothering the world right now about inflation and interest rates and the outlook has got somehow connected to the printing presses of the united states federal reserve uh, bruce it absolutely should have um they are the
3: largest debtor in the world. They are not the only people with too much sovereign debt, but they certainly have a lot of it um, and have used up a big chunk of the of the world's savings over the last couple of years, you know, to, to finance that debt. Um, and I think this is going to be quite a telling year for them. You know, besides the actual stock of debt, which, as you mentioned, $34 trillion now, they're probably going to be running a budget deficit this year of $2 trillion. So that $2 trillion needs to be financed. Uh, in addition to that, and this is really the concerning part there 's a massive chunk of their existing stock of debt that has to be refinanced effectively rolled you know in theory, the government pays off debt and uh, you know disappears. but what happens in reality is they issue a whole lot of new debt to pay off the debt that 's become due and and, and the, the pile just grows so the 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 portion that has to be refinanced this year amounts to roughly eight and a half trillion dollars that 's about a third of all their debt outstanding. Um, And and that's the really big concern. So around about $10 trillion of of debt that the U.S. has to place, um, and lots of question marks about who's going to be doing the buying of all that debt and what price they'd be prepared to take it at. Um, And I think that that raises question marks about the outlook for interest rates. You know, even if short-term interest rates get cut in the U.S., so that's similar to our Reserve Bank cutting our prime rate, our short-term interest rate, Sure. The long-term interest rates uh, where governments borrow money could well continue to rise and stay stay very elevated if they have this much insurance to
2: come. So so I think that
3: is uh, probably the the single largest risk area
2: in the world at the moment. Rudy Van Amaro likes to look at those sorts of flags. Thank you, Rudy, Portfolio Manager at AdviceWorks on The Money Show this evening. Eyewitness News now brought to you by Felix Felix for the businessman who knows what he wants. It's half past six. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. The Money Show is brought to you by APSA CIB, driving impactful action-led insights in collaboration with the APSA Insights Series. APSA is a registered financial services provider, a registered FSP. Uh, To the World Economic Forum, we will go in just a moment because uh, it's it's always fascinating to go to the World Economic Forum. It's got its detractors. I was looking at some loo, Tony Tunes crackpot conspiracy theory clip, which I've now blocked on my social media feeds because it is so nuts about the conspiracies on Fox News, this was, um, around around the World Economic Forum, which is by no means perfect. It's by no means without its flaws, and you can challenge and question it as all you like. But just the, the, the nonsense language that Fox News and its so-called experts choose to utilize in reference to, and I know somebody who challenged me on this at a family gathering saying, you're all part of the same conspiracy. Um, And I did challenge this person to broaden their horizons in terms of uh, their news consumption. But anyway, um, yeah, there there is no crackpot conspiracy. It is an incredible place where the world's leaders meet. and It's where leaders go to meet, where they look to discuss the future of the world and in south africa we know that one of our primary challenges is getting public private participation working in a more active fashion we talk about it a lot we play lip service to it a lot but we don't execute it to the extent and the with the with the vigor that we should senior partner and chairman at McKinsey and Company in Africa Acha Leke very kindly agreed to um join us this evening after we ran out of time last night Acha thank you very much for coming on with us this this era of public-private participation we we treat it a bit like a South African phenomenon because this is our need right here right now but I do think there are some wonderful Global examples of where the private sector and government, Collaborate in the interests of society in a quite effective and cost-effective way. Um, is that your experience? What have you seen?
1: Um, it is absolutely, Bruce, and uh, thanks for having me. Uh, we did miss you here on the mountains. Um, uh, it is very much uh, a global a global phenomenon. I always say, I think Davos is a, the foremost PPP bringing together the public sector and the private sector, and you know we recognise that. We have fundamental challenges around the world, uh, including in Africa and in South Africa. And, and given the scale of these challenges, you know, we can, nobody can, can, can resolve it on the throne, right? And so, it's important for the public sector to come together, for the private sector to work with them, and increasingly, in there was a lot of talk this week about the philanthropic uh, sector as well, right? It's not just public and private, but the three P's, uh, and all of them are represented here. Uh, and the, the question is, how do we all work together? to make a difference in the world.
2: We know that it's the right solution. Why is it so hard to execute on? I mean, you're in a, the consulting business. You try to push people toward favorable outcomes. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Why is it you know, like pushing a rock uphill?
1: It's no, it's not always easy, as you said. I mean, it, it's in a big one because uh, interests are not always aligned. We had long discussions uh, today. at a, We had a, an Africa breakfast, Africa lunch. And McKinsey convened with you know over hundred leaders, and, and, and part of the discussion was very much around what is going to take uh, differently to make it to make it work. So one is we don't always have aligned interests. The second is you know the public sector in many of our, in our countries is not always the easiest to work with. Right, you know things can be slow, uh, things are not always clean, um, uh, and so a question how do you make sure the public uh, sector you know fulfills is part of the promise uh, in these PPPs. And the third is also the, the private sector, right? The private sector, you know, sometimes is always looking out for themselves and not for, for the greater good. Correct. And so the question yep. around, what well, you, how do you make sure the private sector also plays its role in delivering on this?
2: And behaves, frankly. I mean, we, we come from a dark place of, of state capture, and it's no wonder that there's been a substantial breakdown in trust. But we've got to bridge the, the trust gap, Acha, because otherwise we are we're going to come seriously unstuck, as a society, as a
1: country. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and and that, as you know, was the theme of, of the gathering this year, right? But, you know, how to, build the trust, how to rebuild the trust that is broken, and it's broken in many markets around the world. Uh, but I think you, what we found was the the, the mood was actually quite... It wasn't negative. It wasn't negative. I think it was cautiously optimistic. Uh, and good discussions around you know, the fact that, you know, we all have to work together. We need to earn the trust again. We need to make sure we earn the trust. And, uh, and, and, and 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 we had to do it, right? Uh, you know, we, we cannot do it on our own. And so so it's something we're going to have
2: to fix. Achalek, thank you very much indeed. Senior partner and chairman for McKinsey & Company in Africa. Listening to that, the Exaro chief executive, uh, Nombasa Tsengwa, this evening on the line to us from the World Economic Forum. Nombasa, you are a regular attendee at the World Economic Forum? Are you somebody who's been before?
0: Good evening, Bruce. Always great to be on your show. This is my second time, so yeah, getting used to the cold, getting used to the debate.
2: <laughs> but it's fun, isn't it? I mean, it—it's it, the most astonishing place. Of I, I love sort of people watching at the, when I'm allowed yeah. to go to the World Economic Forum when I'm allowed in. <laughs> uh, it's a wonderful place to people watching, to celebrity spot from the world of high finance and business. But it's also a place of n- not only great learning. The former First Rand chairman, the co-founder of First Rand, Laurie Dipinard, was like a kid at a candy store at the World Economic Forum Absolutely. because he would meet astronauts <laughs> and meet executives. And he, he went there for a, for a deep immersion to see how the rest of the world lives and works. What have yeah. been your biggest learnings this time around?
0: Look, for me, first of all, really a privilege uh, to be amongst the great thinkers, you know, decision makers in the world. And for me, the one takeaway the first time at a personal, professional level as a new CEO was that when I listen to all CEOs of great companies, is that we're actually dealing with the same problems. Whether you're in the South or North, we've got similar technology issues, similar people issues, similar finance issues, similar market issues. So... I'm not dealing with unique issues. That really gave me a whole lot of confidence when I came back the first time. And I continuously build on that confidence that I'm sitting here.
2: And um, what, what's the biggest thing you've learned over the last couple of days?
0: Look, we've talked about a few things here, Bruce, but let me also uh, break a little bit to you here to say I was invited to be, <laughs> to be part of the governors of uh, mining and minerals which is a group of 25 CEO uh, of leading mining companies, uh, the likes of Anglo-American South 32. Uh, I can mention a lot of those. Sure. And for me, what has been important has been really conversations which are hung around the theme of rebuilding trust. Uh, we just heard about that now. And in this conversation that we had, it was about how do we make sure that we forge relationships, lasting partnerships, in solving the world's problems, for instance, in the critical minerals environment, which is a great interest to us as Xara. Making sure that we do bottleneck uh, the flow of these uh, minerals, because I don't think that the world, you know, people or society understands that we start mining of these critical minerals, there's no energy transition, let alone talking about a just energy transition. Exactly. So we are making it very clear that we need to enable, you know, the flow of these minerals to be at a pace which is actually ahead of the pace of installation of capacity of renewable energy in the world or other clean energy sources in the world. And looking at critical aspects of this, which is, you know, permitting by governments and making sure that that is efficient, looking at uh, issues of funding, looking at different ways of funding these minerals, You know reimagining partnerships around funding so all of these issues for me have been quite critical and also paying attention to host countries such as african countries that have got you know the wealth of these minerals to say what is in there for them so we can't leave those communities or those governments behind so all of these things have been part of the conversations of the of of the governors and Mm -hmm. saying we need to put together a program of priorities which will, t- will together as the, the governors tackle and create this or shape an agenda that is going to debottleneck and mm-hmm. really increase the pace of these critical minerals mm-hmm. into markets so that we can see the outcome that we want, the impact that we want for net zero 2050 from now.
2: Numbasa Tsengwa, thank you very much indeed from the snowy slopes of the World Economic Forum for joining us on The Money Show. And, of course, um, it's been made possible, of course, by Brand South Africa. They're there with the leaders. They're there sort of overseeing Team South Africa on the snowy slopes of Davos.
3: Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show.
1: 6 to 8 p.m.
2: It's very hard to stand in judgment of anybody's IT meltdown when you've experienced one yourself. And we've had one or two moments in the last couple of months where things have gone, shall I say, a little awry on the radio. So we're a little bit more understanding of just how big a task it is uh, to do fixes of technology. But when you got a National Police Service whose IT network is down for two days in a row Because of botched maintenance, you do have to challenge it and try and figure out what's actually going on. Stephen Ambrose is the Managing Director at Advance Intellect. And we've got these reports, Stephen, of the Police IT Network down on Tuesday and Wednesday. I'm not sure if it's up yet, but certainly early this morning there were patches being done and attempts to try and get it up and running. Uh, There was no clear indication that we were out of the woods yet. It's a dangerous thing for a security service to be offline in the 21st century, I would think.
7: Absolutely, Bruce, absolutely. Um, We live in a world where everything is 24 by 7, everything is hyper-connected. And just a slight aside, apart from all the physical crime and all the actual contact stuff that you need to deal with, the vast majority of serious crime is happening in the cyberspace. It's happening online, it's happening behind the scenes, It's happening in ways that many of us have absolutely no visibility. But at the core of the network, which manages and controls access to every bit of information known to man, essentially, with regard to what's going on, what's happening, who's doing what, and all the crime intelligence and other assorted platforms and systems, it's critical that any organization has, essentially, not only a world-class, but a 999999 7% 7% uptime and should there be an issue the mitigation of that issue through you know, the emergency plans that they have should essentially bring their downtown down in, into minutes if not seconds it should be transparent and these are the standards that I would say the vast majority of the developed world and most of uh, business in South Africa adhere to and it's just astonishing that we continuously hear the systems are down, we're talking about the core business systems with, and the core operating systems within anything to do with government,
2: and I, I yeah, home think of, home home to, affairs is a classic, yeah. isn't it? You you've been in the queue for exactly. six hours, you get offline. to the front of the queue, and you're about to put in your application. They you go, sorry, systems offline. Come back tomorrow. Computer says no. Exactly. Um, and and it's just it's it's maddening in a tech world that we are behind, and it certainly feels like we're behind.
7: Well, we are. And essentially, you could run pretty much anything from your smartphone. Smartphones are powerful. The mobile networks are ubiquitous. They have problems when they go down. They go down for a brief period, sometimes an hour. Then they're back up and running. There seems to be just a structure and a process and a platform and a strategy. And every time we talk about any of these government agencies, anytime, and I'm not getting into finger pointing or anything of that sort, but there just seems to be a complete lack of understanding of what is required for a modern country, a modern entity, for anybody to operate within this space and make sure that your services are delivered, especially critical services. Imagine hospitals, imagine banks all doing this type of thing. Oh, sorry, you can't pay for two days. It's unthinkable. So I think there needs to be some serious looking at what the capacity, capabilities and strategy of these entities are and who they who's doing the work you cannot outsource core fundamental network maintenance and strategy and yes it was obviously a failure yes someone didn't do their job but to shut down the entire network for two days in in this day and age is is unbelievable it's unconscionable and heads will should but will not roll and it needs to be a complete bros thank you managing director at
2: advance intellect taking us to eyewitness news now at seven
1: the money show with bruce whitfield on 702 let's walk the talk on nights 2.7 and 106 fm
2: the money show is brought to you by CIB, driving impactful action-led insights in collaboration with the absa insights series ABSA is a registered FSP. Peter atod uh will join us in just a little bit. I don't believe he's been promoted to such high and elevated standing as chief executive at Auric Business Accelerator that would be a promotion too far my dear producers that would be too much that would be something to which he would aspire i suspect uh, but peter atolmontalto um is with us this evening and it's wonderful to have him uh, for the first time during 2024 20, uh, because I've noticed, Peter, that there is an awful lot of talking going on in South Africa, an awful lot of planning, an awful lot of meetings. Meetings at which people have discussions about what things that that should be done, um, things that actions that should be done. That people we we should we should definitely do things. And I was reading some of the Daily Maverick commentary around the ANC January eighth statement the other day. Someone observed that the president spent a minute or so of an hour long speech talking to. Government's single biggest failing, which is electricity. Um, it's the one thing he doesn't want to have to acknowledge fault for, of course, but it's probably the biggest topic in the minds of voters this year. And it's been publicly played down. In the background, there are lots of meetings, lots of discussions. And you uh, are, are intimately connected, I think, to the, the goings on within the Presidential Economic Advisory Committee. I wonder if all of these discussions have any, do any good whatsoever. Good evening, Bruce.
8: Happy New Year. Um, Well, yes and no. I mean, I think that PIAC, for instance, is an incredibly interesting organization. It's done an awful lot of very good work on agriculture, on energy in particular. Um, But then members can very easily get shouted down by other people in cabinet when they disagree with them, Um, but can create some, you know, momentum or impulse to change, just as happens in meetings between business and government. But also, you know, it's a question of political leadership, and that's where election campaigns are so interesting, uh, to lay out a different stool, uh, to show some fresh momentum. And, uh, you yeah, know, I think with the negative campaign vibes that we got from the January A statement, it wasn't a particularly uh, obvious uh, new, new impulse to accelerate or, or do things differently uh, on electricity so it remains very much the case of reforms are happening and we have to wait for them to bed in
2: okay so i mean the, the the advisory council just describe to me the process how it works who's in the room how you know who who gets to talk who gets to set the agenda who gets to make proposals and who gets to act on those proposals well, it's a voluntary organization
8: um, in the sense of people have to step up and do the work. Um, they're obviously asked to consider certain things. It doesn't help that the president doesn't have an economic advisor at the moment uh, after Trudy McKay left last year. Uh, she was running the thing before. Um, but no, I mean, um, presidents often like to have these things. It's a an open question. Uh, if they actually listen to them, the most interesting thing they probably did last year, of course, was the the splits they had and the different papers they wrote on the, uh, the basic income grant. I think that that actually was very useful in showing up the different perspectives of what is a very interesting, you know, and controversial uh, issue. Uh, actually, to be honest, um, and actually is where they did some good in terms of shaping uh, the debate on an, on an issue like that. But no, elsewhere, you know their uh, closed ears listen to their advice in particular on things like energy um, uh, energy policy um, but um, but yes, now overall I think these things can be a, a good thing we shouldn't experiment miracles from them
2: no, and that's the thing. I mean, I, I, I was just reading some of the notes from the, from the meeting. The P-E-A-C, P-E-A-C, which is a weird acronym, highlighted fiscal risks, the poor performance of state-owned enterprises, ongoing load shedding, historical underinvestment, blah, blah, blah. It's the same stuff that South Africa has been contending with for decades. Yet the same conversations are happening in the same sorts of rooms. And I'm wondering, you know, how that translates to action, Because action, of course, you know, words without action are are simply words or simply ideas.
8: Yes, but you have to remember there's also a defensive purpose to a lot of this as well. There are a lot of madnesses that have to be capped or smothered, um, you know, in particular things like the IRP, uh, which one one needs to uh, smother some of the crazier parts of that and ensure that it becomes a a good, well-formed, least-cost, you know, sensible, well-modeled document, which it isn't at the moment. Um, So yeah, it has a role in doing things like that as well, but also keeping these things on the agenda. If you look at logistics policy, for instance, we have a very good logistics policy forming around the roadmap, but it's five years, uh, I think, minimum of implementation, and we're going to need people like on advisory councils to keep up the momentum, keep up the pressure, um, and you know uh, have those conversations behind the scenes. Uh, Reform
2: is a long, hard slog. It certainly is, and and that's why I think it's important to look at things like this and say, well, you know, where is the result? And that's a terribly tempting thing to to want to um, to to get. You you want you know you want to start with the problem, discuss the problem, get some decisions, get some actions, and get some outcomes. Unfortunately, I don't know if any country does move with any great degree of speed through this process. Um, whether we are that different from from any parts of the world. So I've been
8: speaking to a lot of major offshore bondholders and investors this week about this. The the problem for South Africa, unlike, say, Brazil or now in Argentina or uh, elsewhere, is often these countries have big set-piece reforms, a single thing that the market alights on that has to happen, a single bit of legislation like pension reform uh, uh, was the case uh, a couple of years ago in Brazil. South Africa doesn't really have that because the crises are so broad. It's this broad mishmash of things that have to happen, um, which obviously makes it hard to track. It uh, makes it hard for government to communicate about reform. Um, but I think still very much um, the markets, in particular local analysts, to be rude about them, um, you know, underestimate the amount of reform that's actually happening. Uh, a lot of electricity reforms last year are highly complex below the surface. You know, we've had a, a very complicated but necessary, for instance, curtailment policy uh, submitted to NASA by ESCOM. That's going to revolutionise, you know, unlocking the grid in the uh, in the Northern Cape. Um, but yeah, you know, it's just something that is simply flies under the radar. It's too technical uh, and too complicated to make nice, uh, you know, punchy headlines. But it's an example of real reform that's going on.
2: So it's part of the the participation in status decision making it must be an extraordinarily uplifting place at times an extra- extraordinarily frustrating place at times where there is a cold, hard logic to having some tough discussions, which when the outcomes are ignored, and I I raise here, you know, uh, suggestions around electricity, suggestions around security, suggestions around infrastructure, all of these things that we know are big and and troublesome issues for South Africa to contend with, and then to sort of wait five years for an outcome would drive me completely and utterly up the wall. What sort of sainthoods are possessed by the people who participate in these
5: conversations?
8: Well, I think this is the problem, right? The last time we had these sorts of structures was in the Mbeki government. Um, they were sort of being set up and were running quite well. There were various business advisory councils and things. And then they sort of all died under the Zuma administration. So I think the simple answer to your question is we don't know. These these sorts of new structures have not run for, well enough, for long enough to test the patient's Um, of people that are on them. It's exactly the same for business interactions, uh, people at the World Bank, um, a broad range of stakeholders working on reform. We all need to buckle up for a very long ride. But this is a continual discussion we have with sceptical Treasury people. A lot of ex-Treasury people in the SAAB are very sceptical about these things. They've been around the uh, the merry-go-round on these issues so many times over the last 30 years. Um, So, yes, I mean, that's why we're always battling against uh, a fair amount of scepticism.
2: So, progress is made, albeit slowly and not necessarily obviously, correct?
8: Yes, because it's hard to identify these banner issues. Uh, So, for instance, if the ERA bill gets passed by the National Assembly uh, in this uh, current uh, cycle through the election, um, you know, it's like yay, but it's... uh, it's actually going to be a really important move. I don't think people will realize, for instance, how deep it will be you know, setting up a day ahead market, fundamentally changing the nature and the market structure around these things. And I think that's where we need a more intelligent, I would accept this program, Bruce, a more intelligent media debate and, uh, and other things to uh, ensure these things are well discussed. <laughs>
2: Peter Atold Montalto, thank you for the insight this evening. Um, The President's Economic Advisory Council. Um, If you're part of it and you don't mind sharing your experiences, I'd be curious, genuinely curious as to what it is that motivates you, drives you, gets you there. And I think deep down it's that desire by all of us to see the country function, to see the country work, to see that we don't fall over the edge Of the cliff, which of course is a primary concern for many of the people participating in these discussion forums. I think it's the polite way of putting it. The Money Show Small Business with Pavlo Fatidis. Welcome to Pavlo Fatidis. Pavlo is, now he is the guy who runs Auric Business Accelerator. Uh, Pavlo Fatidis is talking tonight about destination of purpose. Have you been on some sort of personal growth journey over Christmas or something? Have you read a coaching book using words like destination and purpose and things like that, Pablo? What what has triggered you? What has inspired you?
6: Um, Bruce, I got inspired by two things. It started all by saying, right, 2024 is approaching... What could the world look like, as one would ask, prior to planning how you're going to scale and grow your company? And what do I need to be aware of? And very quickly, I realized that uh, 2024 is a year of elections. Um, Over 50 countries will be having their elections, 18 of which make up around 80 percent of all global trade and and economy. It's going to be a year of ongoing battles in uh, Israel and Palestine, Ukraine, and Russia. It is taking us two years closer to the annexation of Taiwan by China, as stated by President Xi. So we're going to have a year of battles. Inflation is still going to hang around. The skills crises are now global. It's right across the plane. It's not a uniquely South African issue in business. And it set itself out to be a really, really tough year, in my view. So I sat down, put all the research aside, looked around, nobody was watching, and called up Netflix because I needed some relief. And I opted to watch this movie called And learned NIAID, about someone sorry, who I'd never n- heard
2: of before. N- hold on. nyad
6: N-Y-A-D. N-Y-A-D. Yeah. And okay. it suddenly dawned upon me that this woman who is a world champion marathon swimmer has the answer of how you need to approach 2024 when the world around you is in absolute chaos. And it all begins with her identifying a destination that she wanted to swim to and in doing so set a world record.
2: I'm curious about this. It's unusual for you to take a movie as a case study. Let's have a little listen to an extract from the movie Nyad, and see if we can get onto the same page as Pavlo this evening. Listen to this. Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life?
1: Don't you want to be fully awake? Your soul ignited by a purpose. Oh, God. Uh, oh. I'm serious. That again.
6: Everybody's got a Diana Nyad. World champion marathon swimmer.
1: This swim I want to do is 60 hours.
0: That's Cuba to Florida.
2: Okay, that's a nice little taste of it. That's Annette Bening, is
6: it? Yeah, it is. And you know, the amazing thing, Bruce, is she, it's, it's 100 miles, so it's 60 hours of consistent swimming that she has to undertake. It is in waters that are plagued with sharks and um, a box jellyfish. A box jellyfish is not a normal jellyfish. It's a monster that when it does sting you, It's almost as if you have been whipped uh, with this massive bullwhip. It leaves a very, very nasty uh, bruise on your body, and it it has massive toxins in it. Plus, also, the waters themselves um, are very unpredictable, as is the weather. So, if you look at what she did, the first thing she said is, I'm going to swim from Cuba to Florida. So, number one, she had a destination. And that destination was driven by a very deep purpose. And that purpose was that Diana Nyad wanted to achieve something that no one else had achieved before. She wanted to push herself into achieving something remarkable. And at the same time that I was watching this movie, I had a number of telephone calls with business owners over the December period, not in South Africa, because in South Africa, we take our summer holidays over that period. Um, It was with business owners in the US and in the UK. And what's interesting about the US and the UK and the mid-tier business owners, um, around 64% of businesses in the US are in the hands of baby boomers and 68% are in the hands of baby boomers in the UK. So all these individuals that I was talking to are above the age of 60, um, some above the age of 70, and all of them are, are facing a scenario where they're looking to exit their businesses. And there were seven different phone calls in this instance, Bruce, right across industry. And of the seven, only one individual actually has a business that they can exit. The remaining six, who have all achieved remarkably and done exceptionally well, recognized in the long conversations we had that without them being there, there is no business. And they then started to say, well, how could we have prevented this? And in answering that, what they realized is that five years back, seven years back, 10 years back, they paused for a minute and said, why do I do what I do? And where am I going with this? And what is the reason that I'm doing what I do to get to where I want to get to? As Diana and I had set a destination being Florida from Cuba, my argument to a business owner is that without a destination clearly defined, you're gonna be swimming in circles. You won't be able to resource your journey. You won't be able to get the right team on board. Time starts to run out. And swimming for 60 hours is already a huge feat. If you don't plan it and you don't deliberately anchor that destination prior to jumping into the water, the likelihood is you'll be swimming once you have run out of food, fuel, and water. And that's why most of businesses land up being unable to be sold. That's why out of seven business owners, six owner scenario, where they are unable to exit, they've achieved their destination in terms of time and energy and love and care. But what they have, won't allow them to exit, which means none of them can get out of that water, they're going to be staying in that water. Okay, so destination matters. And it was one of the big takeaways from NIAID. And it's one of the big takeaways, certainly, in those seven conversations, it's a good starting point.
2: Now, absolutely. The small business feature, of course, brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank is built for your business. But Pablo, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm loving the fact that you're taking a narrative from a movie. It's based on a true story and you are taking lessons out of it because I think there are many things where we go down and think, that was a nice movie. Woman swam from Cuba to America. Oh, Wasn't she brave? Wasn't she strong? Wasn't she clever? Look at her. She is so great. But I, I was—I've been looking and I've been studying companies for a, lo- a long time, but more specifically, looking at companies and looking at founders and looking at the collaborations that create great businesses, and coming to the realization—and it's probably a realization that for many people is. Deadly obvious, but for many others, we kind of say, well, Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, uh, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon.com, this one, the founder of this one, this one, the founder of this one. We kind of attribute it to the individual. However, by the very best calculation that I've been able to do, there is no single individual on this planet before us or with us now or will be in the future who single-handedly, despite their own sense of self-belief, has ever done it
6: alone? No, I I, I don't believe anyone does it alone, Bruce, at all. You know, in in the instance of Diana Nyad, she had a coach. um, She had a navigator. She had someone who understood that channel between Cuba and Florida, understood the water flows, understood the weather patterns, had been moving up and down that channel for years. She had a nutritionist, uh, because here's the thing, that in order to achieve this record, when you swim, you aren't allowed to touch the boat. So you eat in the water, you drink in the water, and you're swimming um, while you're sleeping, literally. She had someone who had created a special device to keep the sharks away. She had to have someone who created a shield for her entire body for when she had to swim through the jellyfish because there's no avoiding any of, of these things. No. And without that team around her, Bruce, it would have been an impossibility for her to achieve it. And yet to have the team around her, they had to be inspired by wanting to work with her to achieve this. And the starting point was still the destination. You spoke about Buffett, you spoke about Jeff Bezos, you spoke about Steve Jobs. When you read their stories, all of them started with the vision. None of them started by simply jumping into the water. They set their destination, they had a very clear vision, and then they built a team around them that were equally inspired about that vision. It's essential to get right and really hard if you don't first start with the destination in order to get the right people on board. And to get them motivated sufficiently to take that long, long journey with you. Bear in mind, eh, it took five attempts. She failed in the first four. And she started this at 60 years of age. Yeah. It's
2: if at first you don't succeed, try and try and try again. Then give up, because nobody likes a fool, um, is one old saying. And the other more positive one is, if first you don't succeed, try and try and try again. Until you do succeed, the fear of failure, I think, in many people is real. Um, And people find failure humiliating. People find failure to be a judgment against them. They see it as a black mark against their names. Very few people who fail um, have the courage to pick themselves up and have another go. Um, And... Uh, for all of Edison's 10,000 patents or whatever it was or 10,000 inventions during his lifetime, he acknowledged that you know every single one of these was a failure until it succeeded. And it is that persistence which I think sets, uh, sets apart those that succeed and those who don't. Persistence, relentlessness, the ability to uh, endure agony in some cases um, in the belief that what they're building is good and great.
6: And Bruce, you know what? The the one thing that I really picked up from this movie, and and that's why I think it's such a it's such an important movie for anyone in business to watch, is that Diana Nyad never did what she did to be famous. The purpose around doing it was to have left an impact in the short life that she and all of us live. So she was driven by a far bigger purpose then the fame or the fortune, if it were to follow, should she achieve this? She started at 60, she achieved it at 65. She was told consistently that at her age, it's an impossibility. And she then argued at one point in time, I don't believe in imposed limitations. And I think given what with what lies ahead for all of us this year, as a business owner, the best way to start as you set a destination, it should be the value of your business. Five years from now, 10 years from now, what do you want that value to be? Understand how the value comes about. And then as much as I'm reticent to say it, don't pay attention to anyone or anything, put your head down, breathe and take one stroke after the next until you get there, but be single-minded. Because it's the only way you're going to remain sane. Pavlo Fatidis at Auric
2: Business Accelerator. Thank you very much, Pavlo Fatidis. Small business feature with Pavlo on a Thursday night. Time for the latest Eyewitness News. Warren Ingram is standing by. Why you should always have shared. The Money Show. Personal
1: Finance with Warren Ingram.
2: Uh, Before I chat to Warren Ingram, I was just listening to Antilem Kutama this evening, and he is... (laughs) I'm sorry. Uh, What did he say? We're not ageist, and for as long as Jacob Zuma is um, well and capable, this is a guy who Dalian Porfu told the courts was dying. <laughs> he, uh, I, I think he'll outlive most of us, frankly. Uh, Warren Ingram, co-founder at Galileo Capital. He's a certified financial planner. He is a personal financial advisor. This idea of always needing to own shares, Warren, is quite a contentious one for many people. Many people, and I hear this from time to time, less now than I used to, because maybe I've drowned out the people who are fundamentalists in this regard to go, Stock markets are casinos, share prices go down, Marcus Uesta uh, goes and it's just a terrible idea to buy shares. I don't believe in buying shares, there's too much risk. And then people get poor quickly over time uh, because unfortunately what happens is their money loses value. So let's talk about the need to own shares and why all of us should all own shares all the time. And the difference between that and all of us owning all the shares all the time under all circumstances, because there are some subtleties at play here.
5: That's a really subtle point. The last one, Bruce, so uh, I think maybe just to start with the, the, the reason that we all need to own shares is the growth that we get from shares, especially above inflation. And, And, you know, the, the, Fund managers call it the real return so how, how much how much does your your investment grow above the the prevailing inflation rate and you know w- w- whether it be in South Africa or in the global markets and especially in the u s uh, you know the world 's biggest stock market you, you you would you will notice that that over let's say five or ten or fifteen years the the stock market will will always be the the, the asset that gives you the biggest growth rate above inflation. And, and I'm comparing it then to, let's say, the bond market, uh, the, the listed property market and cash. Uh, unfortunately, what happens with, with your growth rate from, from the stock market is it, it arrives in absolute big lumps. And, and then every now and then it takes chunks away from you again. Uh, and, and so it feels for most people that they're actually getting nowhere. They're going nowhere. But when you track the stock market, whether it's SA or global, you get a return of about six percent a year above inflation, and and that's a really important number because uh, you know we we see this.
2: What's really important? What's really important here is you don't get six percent above inflation every year. Some years you lose money. However, I think that there have only been two years, and I don't, I don't want to start putting false data into the into this into the atmosphere. But there have been very few years in the last thirty, for example, where there have been annual declines in in, in overall share prices. Um, we're talking about averages over time, so an average of six percent above average inflation over time, right?
5: Exactly right, and I, and I think that that's the it's it's that um, the the craziness of the stock market that that scares a lot of people because in a good year you you might see your investment in the stock market go up by fifty percent. So you you put in a hundred thousand rand in January, and you know you look again at the end of December, and your hundred is now one hundred and fifty thousand, and and you feel like an absolute king, but but equally the, the stock market's very. Yeah, oh, yeah, of course, of course. Uh, the, 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 equally, though, the stock market is very capable of 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 dropping by as much as forty four percent in in the same twelve month period, and and that's the, the 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 issue that we face. Is the the psychologists will tell you that you know if you make fifty percent on your money, you, let let's say you get you, you know really happy, but but if you lose forty percent of your money, you get incredibly depressed, and it's something like. You know, doubly more depressed than, than, than you got happy when you, when your money went up 50%. So that, that and almost here's the, psychological. Here's the, here's the funny thing. Sorry, Warren. You can go up from 100 this year
2: to 150 next year, feel like a bulletproof genius. The next year, your money falls by 44%. So instead of 150,000, you are down to, uh, what, 78,000 or whatever the number would be. Um, And suddenly you feel like the end of the world is nigh, and that's when a lot of people sell out of markets because it was fine when things were going the way they liked it. When they lost nearly half the money the following year, suddenly it was the market's fault that they were poor, and it made them feel bad, twice as bad as they felt good in the good year, and therefore people start behaving emotionally toward the loss, right?
5: Correct, and 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 here's the thing: the 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 that that return that we've been talking about, that average return of the stock market over a long period of time, uh, you you only really get that when you stay invested in shares over long periods of time, and and the reason is that uh, it's roughly half, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to get into the exact percentages, but it's roughly half of the growth from the stock market comes from earning the dividends that these companies are paying every six months and then reinvesting those dividends back into the companies that you own. So wh- whether it's an index or a basket of individual shares, getting those dividends buying more shares uh, is critical to the growth of the stock market. And so, you you know, those people that have you've kind of drowned out over the years of telling you that, you know, they they only see losses on the stock market, I suspect, and, and I've seen them, you know, for the last 25 years as well, that they generally will buy after everyone else has bought and, you know, after the stock market's gone up. Then they lose money, so they sell. Uh, and then they wait and wait and wait and the stock market goes up again and all the time they're not earning the dividends that everyone else is earning who stayed invested and by the time they get get confident enough to buy again it's just before the peak of the market the the person who does Absolutely nothing except buy and hold is, you know, going on the same roller coaster ride. Except that their money is kind of making those money babies by earning the dividends and buying more shares. And most of the time, Bruce, when when your portfolio is down, when you when you've got that forty four percent loss, uh, it actually means that those dividends that you're earning are buying even more shares. And then when everything goes up, you, you, your your growth really starts to work in your favour. So, so the, the, the secret source in this whole thing is it's all good and well that someone like me says, gee, there's an average growth of 6% a year. And, and you were right to point it out. It's not 6% every single year above inflation. It's, you know, 50%, then minus 40, then plus 20, et cetera, et cetera. And watching this and tracking it all the time will drive you crazy. So, you know, hint number one, please stop tracking your investments all day, every day, because that's not going to help you. Uh, hint number two, earn the dividends, reinvest them. And then just let them do their job. These are businesses. Ultimately, what people lose sight of is these companies that you own. When you own a basket of shares, or an index, or a unit trust, it doesn't really matter. Eventually, you're you're a part owner. Of high quality business businesses, most of them run by good management teams who are doing their level best to adapt to whatever the environment is that they're in, uh, to find reasons to protect their business, then to grow it again, despite load shedding or despite Russia or despite you know wh- whatever is going on in the Middle East. All of these things are are factors that businesses are trying to sort out and then keep growing their their income and their revenue and their profits and therefore their dividends to you. All you've got to do is sit on your hands and hold tight. Uh, and, and that's really hard for people to do. I'm not, I'm not disparaging the, the the difficulty of doing that. If if it was easy, we'd no, all course. be doing it and we'd all be Warren Buffett. <laughs>
2: and, uh, yes, and, and here's the thing. Uh, I hear you and I'm going to do this, one. But I'm going to wait until it's certain. I'm going to wait until I know that stock markets are going to go up. I've heard this one before more than once or twice. Things are a bit uncertain. You know, This in August last year, I I heard that inflation was coming down. I heard interest rates are going to be cut. I was going to wait until interest rates started getting cut. And as soon as the U.S. Fed says it's going to cut interest rates, that will be the signal to me that I'm going to start investing in shares. I'm going to wait for that. Because that will give me comfort and certainty. That will allow me to sleep easier at night. I know then that I won't lose money. Isn't that? I mean, I'm sure and, you get that.
5: And and certainty is is possibly the most lethal uh, 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 thing you can find in in stock markets. Because the moment everybody feels very certain about something, that, that that's teeing you up for 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 a, um, a major shock. Any anything that happens to shake that certainty that everybody's feeling at the same time will cause a major crash. So, so generally, um, I mean, what happens in a situation like this is people wait on the sidelines, they build up cash, they feel good because they're not losing money uh, what they're missing at that time when things are incredibly uncertain is the great business that you know that's ha- has its share price being halved uh, simply by market dynamics but not not the way that it's earning revenue or the way that it's earning uh, profits and 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 paying out dividends that company is at an all-time low it's it's offering you great value but but you're sitting on the sidelines waiting for certainty in other words you're waiting for that great business to become a lot more expensive so by the time you feel certainty it's usually just before the peak of the market uh, and, and then the, the the next downturn so so you need to be really comfortable it's, it's such a cliche i think these you know these psychologists uh talk about it all the time you've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable as a as an investor and and to me it's a great it's a great comment you you just ride it out. Uh, and, and w- when markets are really rocky, when everyone around the dinner table or the braai is freaking out all around you, uh, k- kind of just don't participate in the conversation. Go home and the next morning buy some more shares because that's where the opportunities are. They're not there when, when everything is certain and stable and, and life is, is good and we all feel warm and fuzzy. That's, that's actually a danger sign to me, Bruce. I, I, I think certainty is the most expensive thing. Uh, you can get in the investment markets. We haven't even got to the, the the point around cash yet, which is even more certain. But but for the stock market, c- certainty is is I think lethal. You've got to know that uncertainty is your best friend most of the time.
2: And that's the great thing—that's so hard to to stomach and to accept and to fathom and understand, Warren. Because I'm going to keep my money in cash. I'm going to put my money in the bank. It's my favorite. I'm going to keep it in the bank. I'm because you know, hey, bank, you know. And actually, I don't trust the banks. I'm going to keep the money under the mattress. I'm going to buy Krugerrands and I'm going to put them under my bed because then I've got gold, and gold is the king of the world. And in some cases, it is. And gold has been a good investment for a long period of time. But they miss out because cash does not keep up with inflation and doesn't match the volatility and the and the returns and doesn't give you the
5: dividends. and so it's, we, we, yeah, ultimately you become poorer over time. We got a question on, on, what, what do we call it? Twitter or X, uh, t- today from, from someone asking this exact question about RSA retail bonds. Okay. And, you know, just saying, mm. you know, I'm, 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 my plan is to, to, to save as much as I can and, and then lock in that cash into the RSA retail bonds when I retire. Uh, you know, I'm going to get nine or 10%. What do you think? Isn't that a great idea? And, and so my reply was, listen to the show. We're going to, we're going to talk about this. And so let, let's, let's do it. And, and I think the one thing to understand is, uh, when you, I I look now and and RSA retail bonds are paying out about nine percent, uh, you know, I think over two or three year period, which is, which is a lovely return on the surface. It looks amazing. You know, it's, it's certainly higher than inflation. Uh, your, your only real risk is, is the risk that government defaults on you. And, and, you know, you, 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 you might be right that there'll be default risk in five or 10 years time, but probably not in the next two or three years. So you lock in your 9% and, and every quarter or every six months, you look at your statement and it's going up and you feel like an absolute legend what you need to remember <laughs> is if you pay any kind of tax you're sacrificing i, I, I think somewhere around 2 uh, 2 and a quarter percent to 4% of your of your interest is going to go to tax so you're 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 making uh, SARS happy uh, which means you're actually only banking about five to, uh, n- nearly just under 7% a year, um, interest after you've paid your tax. Now, I, I don't know exactly what the inflation rate is. I don't think any of us do, but if we assume it's somewhere around six or 7% a year, what that means is you've never lost money in any single month over the last one or two or three years, but the buying Yay. power of your money has slowly been eroding. Boo that's the problem thank you warren a question from cutler i want to get to
2: this one in a moment or two how much money can i withdraw from my investments as i'm planning to retire this year i don't know how much i can withdraw from my savings and i still have enough money for my lifetime i don't want to run out of money and i would like a decent standard of living it's a good general question that cutler more with warren on that question with an answer in a moment
1: the money show personal finance with warren ingram
2: A quick one on this, Warren, because I got a little bit obsessed about shares and markets. But uh, Catlero wants to know how much he can withdraw from his investments and still maintain a decent standard of living as he approaches retirement.
5: So it's the Goldilocks question, you know. The, the porridge can't be too hot or too cold, and and so I did some quick sums for Katrejo, and just to say, Katrejo, your your money will need to be invested in a in a kind of a balanced portfolio, at least, you know, a, a, somewhere around sixty percent in shares, forty percent in bonds. If that happens, uh, for 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 every ten thousand rand a month that you want to spend. You, you will need about two point four million rands worth of investments so uh you, you know if uh, if you're going if you want to spend about fifty thousand rand a month at retirement you're going to need about twelve million rand and you know if you're if you 're in the high expense person bracket then you then you're when you want to spend a hundred thousand a month you're going to need about twenty four million and and that's called the five percent rule which applies in in south africa bruce and and if you've if, if you're going to be traveling and you're going to be living a portion of your, your time overseas. Unfortunately, you're going to need a bit more money. And then it's about uh, three million rand for every 10,000 you want to spend. Uh, and you can multiply that up. So up to a hundred thousand, you'd need about 30 million. So, so it's it's big big numbers, but if you do that and you're retiring at 65, then then I think, and your and your money's invested in a balanced portfolio, I think you would you would be sure that your money will last uh, over your lifetime, and there might be some left over, but it will track inflation and allow you to to live that decent standard of living without compromising yourself, you know, much later in life when you, you you find out you're starting to run out of money
2: the temptation to say look there's a cash portion i can take as i um turn 55 and then i can change my investment strategy when i'm 55. i think that temptation for many people is real because times are tough and things are awkward but for as long as you can keep as much money as heavily invested as you can in financial markets uh, until you know you actually need to start accessing that money because you have no other way of earning an income and i i cannot stress that enough to give the market's time to work there their magic and compounding the value of your investments
5: and and my suggestion is save this show and in the future when you get worried and uncertain and uh, play this play, play a recording of the show again on the uh, and just remind yourself that markets are volatile and you if you stay invested you'll be okay it's when you sell out and panic that you won't be okay And you can't buy certainty. All you can buy is long-term growth uh, by by being patient. And that's much more valuable than than short-term certainty.
2: Warren Ingram, the wisdom of Warren on a Thursday. Um, Next week, we're moving you, Warren. Uh, I don't know if you know, um, but I've asked my producers to have a word and say we need Warren's wisdom earlier in the week. So could we see you on Tuesday, half past seven? Keep the same sort of slot. Happy? I'll be there. Look at that. He's so amenable as our Warren Ingram. Maybe we discussed it beforehand. Warren Ingram on a Thursday from next week on a Tuesday. Um, doing personal finance on a Tuesday. We've had the personal finance slot on a Thursday night for an awfully long time. But no fear, there will still be personal finance content on a Thursday night, if that is your appointment with our investment school. If you've got any input, if you've got any ideas, if you've got anything you want us to address, um, email me, W at 702.co.za, and say, you know what, do not discussed this. Keep the crypto questions out of it, because we do talk crypto from time to time, but this is the investment school we we'll to be talking about. I get into so much trouble with the crypto people. Um, but yes, absolutely. Warren, on a Tuesday, um, uh, 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 money school moves to a Thursday night from next week.